All right, welcome everyone to He's Done It, a mostly sports podcast. I'm Corey Novotny, and I'm joined today, as always, by Benjamin Carlson and Brian Wells. Our main topic for today is the NBA Finals, as the Toronto Raptors' bold move to acquire Kawhi Leonard paid off in the form of a championship. We'll recap their upset victory while also discussing the injuries to Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson that could shape the outlook of the upcoming offseason. In the quick hitter segment, we break down the St. Louis Blues winning their first ever Stanley Cup in an epic seven-game series victory over the Boston Bruins. We'll discuss the performances of several key players, as well as touch on some of the officiating controversy that played a role in this series and the entire postseason. Later in the episode, we talk about the dominant start to the World Cup for the United States women's national team in Aloha Echo and give our thoughts on the shocking headline that Boston Red Sox legend David Ortiz was shot in his native Dominican Republic in Athletes in the News. And in honor of Father's Day, the three of us count down our favorite movie dads in today's top five. today by talking about the NBA and the NBA Finals as like all of us predicted the Toronto Raptors won the NBA Finals knocking off the Golden State Warriors we totally saw that one coming Uh, and of course the the surprise victory uh, had to do with to some extent some injuries as well as just dominant play by Kawhi Leonard as a bold move in the offseason paid off in the form of a championship. I was actually a huge fan of this, the Kawhi Leonard trade for DeMarc DeRozan and others in that trade as well. I just never, I really didn't think they were ever going to get anywhere with DeMar DeRozan, even though we've talked about it before in the past, LeBron's now with the Lakers and they've been losing constantly to LeBron and the Cavaliers. Uh, I just never thought they were ever going to get over that hump of actually making it to the finals and winning a championship if it was still going to be relied on him with Kyle Lowry, but Adding Kawhi Leonard, you know, you just take a shot to see if it works or not. Even if it, even if they didn't win the championship and they got booted out of the second round or or the East Finals, I was still a fan of that trade. And you know, luckily for them, they came out on top. Honestly, I was just a fan of this whole season. Like now that the Raptors are the champions, looking back, it's been awesome. Like Kawhi Leonard got memed so hard at the beginning of the season with his laugh. Like everyone made so much fun of him because of the awkward way he laughed at his like Raptors opening press conference or whatever. But now who gets the last laugh? It's him. He played so amazing in the finals. He was like the obvious finals MVP. And uh, it, that that's so amazing. Like uh, looking as a... I, I guess I would say neutral fan. I, I'm a Thunder fan, obviously, but that didn't have much of an impact on most of the playoffs. Um, so it was awesome to see this guy, this uh, this character, Kawhi Leonard, have a season that was all about him. It began and ended with him. That's how it felt. 
Yeah, there was, there's no really a doubt that Kawhi was going to win MVP if the Raptors won the series. He was a leader throughout the season, 30 and a half points per game throughout the playoffs. So uh, him leading the Raptors to a championship with the way he played in the playoffs shouldn't have been necessarily like some shocking thing to us. And I think to some extent, the uh, we, we almost overhyped the Warriors and underhyped the Raptors uh, in the sense that it was, oh, it's Kawhi and nobody else, because they did have a lot of role players who yes. came in and stepped up in they, the series. Pascal that... Siakam in game one, a big one. Kyle Lowry was phenomenal. Uh, Fred Van Vliet, I know you, you're name-generated guy. So name-generated. Uh, you know how name-generated he was? He was undrafted. I didn't even know that last time I criticized his, yeah. his last name, but I have since found out because he's definitely a Cinderella story. Uh, he, and it's he even awesome. got he even got a finals MVP vote. It was 10, uh, 10 votes for Kawhi Leonard, but even Fred Van Vliet uh, with the awesome defense he had on Steph Curry and some clutch shots he had in the finals, he even got a vote in that in that final series. Oh, yeah, he was very clutch, especially in Game 6, because obviously Kyle Lowry was very clutch, especially at the beginning. He kind of just like started going off. But fourth quarter Kyle Lowry wasn't there and it was Fred Van Vliet who picked up the shooting from the perimeter and, and really came through in this finals and and that's the thing about um, Kawhi Leonard being the MVP what's interesting is that basically game in and game out Kawhi Leonard gave you the same game he was always the a very dominant scorer um, but the difference between winning and losing was definitely the supporting players on the Raptors when Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet had good nights the Raptors won and and that they won't get recognized with like an MVP vote very or, or many MVP votes, but that ended up being the difference when those guys came through. Uh, it's it's kind of an interesting role for Kawhi Leonard. He was just like the constant, right? Uh, and it's when these other guys decided to have their night that the Raptors r- really showed uh, that how great of a team they are. And that's exactly why I didn't think the Raptors were going to win the series. And yes, they probably won be- a lot of the reasons because. Katie and Clay both got injured, but I also thought that the play outside of Kawhi with the rest of their roster of Siakam and Lowry and, and so on, I didn't think was consistent enough, but Siakam was the best player in game one. And then I think Kyle Lowry, uh, especially in that first quarter, he was the best player on the floor in game six. So they got enough help from the rest of the team outside of Kawhi to pull a victory. Yeah, and injuries are a part of the game. So Really what it came down to is Golden State has all these star players, but they weren't able to build a complete roster around them. And that was what kind of was uh, showcased in that Golden State didn't have the depth to be able to compete against a Toronto Raptors team that was arguably the best team in the regular season. Uh, really them and the Milwaukee Bucks, and they beat the Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals. So I, I think it, it is very reasonable to say that the best team actually won the championship this season. Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant not playing, obviously that's huge. If those guys play, Golden State probably wins their third straight championship. But the Raptors were, they didn't just beat Golden State. The games they won, they, they were relatively convincingly, especially games three and four in Oracle Arena. Uh, so they, they took advantage of a situation and they, to me, that it wasn't necessarily a fluky win just because of how convincingly they won when Golden State was without Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant. Well, I feel like if they had both Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant, they definitely win. Um, but with just Clay Thompson, I would have loved to have seen this entire series. I, I, 
as much as I love seeing the Raptors win and you know how the history and I, I'm a big fan of Kawhi Leonard, all that stuff is great. But I feel like if they had Clay Thompson, the Warriors win this game, and then we see an epic Game Seven. And I, and I honestly couldn't confidently predict that game uh, if Clay Thompson's playing. I have the exact same thoughts that if if KD was back in that series and healthy, unlike like how he was in Game Five. Uh, I think with just Clay, it would have been, yeah, exactly what Ben said. A seven-game series and an unpredictable ending, yes. Yeah, which would have been awesome. And unfortunately, we didn't get that. You know, and and no one, I don't want there to be an asterisk next to this game. People are trying to say that, like, oh, the Raptors only won because the Warriors got hurt. Um, no, it's part of the game. Uh, you know, like, health is definitely something that comes and goes with the game of basketball. And, um, like, if you look back at the Warriors' history, if if your rule is winning against an injured team causes an asterisk, then the Warriors have asterisks on their championships I was as just well. about to say that. Kyrie Irving in Game 1 in the 2015 NBA Finals, he gets hurt. And he's done for the series, and it's literally just LeBron carrying a bunch of scrubs. Yeah. And the Warriors end up winning in six, but what kind of series is that if Kyrie's in? Because we saw the ne- very next year, they won seven, and Kyrie makes the big shot and wins them the title. Exactly. So I think we all just need to accept that injuries are part of the game, and uh, congratulations to the Raptors for winning the championship. You know, no asterisks involved. So now as we, we go on from here, the two players that we're talking about who are injured for the Warriors, Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson, are set to be free agents. So is this loss the end of the Golden State Warriors dynasty that has captured three titles in five seasons? My question is, with the KD injury in Game 5 to his Achilles, he's basically going to redshirt next year. Does I was thinking that he was going to leave, but with his injury, does that make him stay or does that still make him go to the Knicks or the Nets with Kyrie? Yeah, that's my biggest question is, do either of these guys move next season? I, I don't really know how like season-long injuries work in the NBA. So I don't think Clay is leaving. I think that they're going to give him a max contract and do whatever it takes to keep him, and that Clay will want to stay in Golden State with Steph. Durant is the interesting one, because I know there's some talks that he's just going to opt in, take his $30 million, whatever it is this year, and try out free agency next year. But does he want to take the chance of you know having taken off a year and have teams feel like his value is a little diminished at that point, knowing that he's going to be on a comeback and almost be in like a, a boogie cousin situation, which I don't think it'll be to that extent. But if teams are willing to offer Durant a long contract right now, I think he's got to just take it, knowing that he's probably not going to play next year, and then teams will get three years out of him. I still think he's going to leave. I don't know if this injury changes it, if the Warriors losing the final changes it. I think if he doesn't want to be in Golden State anymore, he got his two championships, he wants to be the man, it makes sense that he's going to go to New York, whether it's the Knicks or the Nets. Yeah, my exact thoughts were, if take out the injury situation, my thoughts were he's definitely leaving Golden State wherever he goes. But with the injury, I just, I don't know if it changes anything or not is what I'm wondering. Well, so are our teams willing to hand out a max contract to someone who's, you know, their future is so uncertain? It's not like the boogie. They might not even play next season. Yeah, it's not like the boogie situation where he's just going to get $5 million uh, and then just sit the entire year. But it's like, I mean, I I think he's going to get a big load of money wherever he goes. It's just that our teams, whether it's the Knicks or the Nets or someone else, are they willing to put in that much money knowing that, one of those years he's not even going to play. Well, yeah, but also will he ever play 
the same way again. That's another question because right now it's fair to say that Kevin Durant is the best player in the NBA, or at least he's in the top five without a doubt. Without a doubt. But torn Achilles, that's that's not necessarily easy to come back from. There are some players, Dominique Wilkins is one who had a tremendous career after tearing his ACL, but he tore it when he was 21. Kevin Durant has a decent amount of wear and tear on his body at this point. So that that's certainly a question of, is he going to be the same player? And at that point, do teams want to take the risk on it? So I do still think somebody's going to. I think that he's young enough and he's shown just how dominant he is that if you're a team like the New York Knicks who's craving star power, you're going to do whatever you can to get him. And the reports say that there are multiple teams who still are willing to back up the Brinks trucks to bring Durant on board. And that Golden State's still going to offer him the, the max contract. So I think that he'll be okay wherever he ends up. And I, I think it makes sense for him to take the money and not just opt in and hope for the best next year. Yeah, but I think we can all agree that it's it's a real shame that we're going to miss out on a whole year of prime Durant. Like, honestly. Oh, yeah, it, absolutely. It sucks. Because I was really excited to see where he'd go next year because uh, KD's legacy has definitely taken a hit from his decision to join the Warriors. But that decision doesn't... I don't think that decision will be as important once his career is over if he leaves golden state next year he'll have plenty of years of competing for a title with other teams and if he wins with those other teams we'll just look at his championship total you know it'll be more of like part of his career instead of his career defining move so um it's just definitely disappointing to see him go down like this uh, and hopefully he'll return and we'll get to continue seeing the greatness that is kevin durant injuries are the worst things in sports but with the injury it definitely opens up you know the rest of the league to you know go on to make a run whether if it's the bucks in the east or can you not hear me again no no no. i'm about to say the lakers oh. <laughs> <laughs> they have a real chance the lakers win in this in this scenario yeah and i, I do want to talk about what some of these injuries mean uh for the upcoming offseason as well as talk about a big trade that happened but before we totally move on from the nba finals going back to the toronto raptors Jeremy Lin, who was the first Asian American to win an NBA championship. And that's something that I feel like it's coming up a lot on social media. People are making this big deal about it, that you know Jeremy Lin accomplished this, uh, being the first to do it. And of course, you got the jokes that Jeremy Lin won a championship before Carmelo Anthony, his former Knicks teammate. Um, but in, in terms of like the the context of that there are also a lot of people who are coming out and saying what he only played like three minutes in the series he barely did anything and i don't think that tells the full story so jeremy lynn in high school as a senior at palo alto high school in california led his team as a captain to a 32 and 1 record and won the division two state title uh, he was named first team all state and the Northern California Division II Player of the Year. But he didn't get recruited by any Division I schools. He had to send like DVDs of his uh, highlights to schools in the Pac 10, including his dream schools, Stanford and UCLA, as well as all the Ivy League schools. And he had a lot of coaches come out and say, this guy's just not, you know, not, not great. Like, Coaches only have so many players they can look at. They don't want to waste their time on this guy. He winds up going to Harvard as a walk-on, and the first time his 
coach there saw him play, he said he's a Division three player at best. And then the second time he said, oh, never mind. This guy's great. I want him on my team. Still didn't offer him a scholarship, though. But while he was at Harvard, he became the first player in Ivy League history to record 1,450 points, 450 rebounds, 400 assists, and 200 steals. So after the struggle that he went through to even play Division I college basketball, he was a star. Uh, you know, at least a star for an Ivy League player. But that still wasn't considered enough to make the NBA. He went undrafted. The Dallas Mavericks is the only team that invited him to play on their summer league squad. And he he shined there enough that there were multiple teams who were going after him uh, with a legitimate contract offer. He chose the Golden State Warriors because they were his local team growing up. And he got his foot in the door. It took a little bit of struggle, but eventually, of course, you know, he ends up in the New York Knicks. Lynn Sanity breaks out. He has that, uh, you know, moment that felt pretty quick, just how everything died out. But he's been able to continue his career, be a solid role player, a starting point guard on decent teams, uh, making the playoffs a few times. And then Toronto, they brought him in. He was used more in the regular season than in the playoffs, but I think he is fully deserving of the title of being the first Asian American to win an NBA championship. And I think it's just a really all around great story what Jeremy Lin has been able to accomplish, uh, just all the adversity that he's faced throughout his his career of going from a high school basketball player to an NBA champion. Can I mention one more thing? Pat yeah. McCaw on the Raptors, he's won an NBA championship every single year he's been in the NBA because he was with the Warriors the past couple of years and he was with the Raptors this year versus his own former team. And he's he's been, an, I think that's even more impressive. He's been an NBA champion for th- for his three entire for career and he's done nothing. <laughs> Wait, what's his name? Pat McCaw. Yeah, Pat McCaw. I, I saw like uh, somebody tweeted, it was like the Warriors and then it was like a like what the Warriors were saying was like, let's get this three peat. And then Pat McCaw was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, J- Jeremy Lin. No, this is this is actually like one of the amazing like bonus victories we get from the Raptors winning. Um, and that's I, I'm so glad you brought this up. I, I was not aware of his backstory like this, but mm-hmm. um, for ye- it was a struggle. Yeah, and um, I've also been struggling for years. I've been suffering from a chronic illness. The doctor diagnosed me with terminal Lynn sanity, and the only cure was for Jeremy Lynn to become the first Asian American uh, to win an NBA title. So I, I'm relieved, and, and I'm honestly uh, ecstatic that Jeremy Lynn picks this victory up, uh, whether he was a key contributor or not because um as a as a as a member of a basketball team myself i believe every member of the team contributes their small part and you couldn't do it without them so i think that even if your only real contributions come in the regular season you still deserve that ring you earned it with the other teammates because players that don't know their role and like demand more time and like don't you know they want to be the star even though they don't have the skill (laughs) <laughs> Carmelo Anthony, but those players who play their role help the team win, and they deserve to bask in the glory of the championship. So Jeremy Lin fully deserved champion uh, here too. There's also no asterisks attached to his name either. Mm-hmm. He's a bona fide NBA champion. Yeah, it's always cool when the the stories come out and you kind of realize, oh wait, this guy 
who maybe didn't play a big role, if any at all, is a, a champion. Uh, I think Sean Livingston is one of the more recent ones that comes to mind with the Golden State Warriors, but uh, this is a really cool story. Something I didn't really think about until you started seeing all this stuff, and I was very disappointed at some of the, the hate about him not playing and not, not deserving anything because he has done a, a ton in his career, and uh, I think we all had those moments where we got caught up in Lin's sanity. I'm a huge fan of the 12th, 13th man that didn't play but was a big presence on the bench with you know, Brian Scalabrini in 2008 with the Celtics, Kendrick Perkins with all these teams he's been with, and uh, Jawan Howard with the Miami Heat. Yeah, I, I lo- I'm all about the 12th, 13th man as well. And then that's, 12, I'm not even joking man. either. Yeah. That's hilarious. No, actually, though, it's, um, again, I've had all these basketball rel- like revelations ever since I've like joined a basketball team. Uh, it's made me appreciate the sport that much more. And one of my favorite things about basketball is the active participation the bench has in like cheerleading like you get to be your team's biggest hype man because obviously you're a fan you're on the team you want them to win (laughs) and uh the bench is just full of dudes doing hilarious stuff whenever their team is really killing it and i and i love that about basketball now i think at this point that's that's enough for the nba finals we can move on as we look ahead to the offseason and now we got a little bonus. Anthony Davis was traded to the Lakers a couple days ago uh, after demanding his trade request midseason. The Pelicans' former GM, Del Demps, refused to send him to L.A. He was fired. David Griffin, former Cavs GM, was brought in as president, and he orchestrated a pretty fine deal for a team that was trading not only a superstar player, but a superstar who demanded a trade from the team. I think the Pelicans did actually a pretty good job, but in my opinion, I think the Lakers, they they won the Anthony Davis trade. And I just think that talent trumps everything in the NBA. In, in that league specifically, talent trumps everything in the NBA. And yeah, You can't trade a superstar player and win a trade. Yeah, it's just like Anthony Davis, he's one of the top, probably five best players in the entire league. And if you look at what the Pelicans got, yes, they got a pretty good package, but I mean, Lonzo Ball, I mean, who knows what his ceiling is. And then his dad is always a knucklehead. And then Brandon Ingram, he's got that blood clot issue. Uh, Josh Josh Hart is a nice role player, but I don't know how much he can provide for a team winning a championship. And then for the draft picks, I mean, we know what the the one this year is. It's a number four pick, but it's a three-player draft from what I've been hearing with Zion, Morant, and R.J. Barrett. But after those three, it's it's kind of a drop-off. So, so, and then the other two picks, who knows what they're going to be. I mean, I just think that for the Lakers, I'd rather contend for a championship every year with two or three superstar players and be drafting at the bottom of the first round, or not even in the first round at all, rather than just stacking up all these assets and hoping they pan out. I feel like it's a pretty mutually beneficial trade. The Lakers obviously want to win now. They have an aging LeBron James, and their championship window is not going to get that much wider. Uh, they need to get talent now to support the King. And grabbing Anthony Davis is an amazing move. That's spec. That's spectacular. It's exactly what LeBron James wanted, and um, they have a chance to even add on to that. So right now, the the Lakers are in championship mode. Meanwhile, the Pelicans just picked up one of the best NBA prospects ever. 
and they want to support him. They have, they want to give him a supporting cast that will help him win championships. So, in my opinion, they set themselves up well here. If they can make those draft picks into valuable even role players, they'll be giving Zion uh, as much help as possible. So, and Lonzo could be turn out to be something, or Brandon Ingram could turn out to be something. So, I feel like they gave themselves a bunch of options to help themselves build into that perennial championship contender while the Lakers are in the win now mode and they got exactly what they need for that. So I feel like they both win. But, but no, both both sides are definitely benefited from this. I just think the getting the superstar is just more important than Yeah, and I, I agree with both of you because the Lakers are getting a like you said, a top five player in the league. And this is a move they had to make. Even though Anthony Davis seemed to prefer going to the Lakers, the thought is that he would choose to sign with them in the offseason over any other team. The Lakers had to make this move. They saw what happened with Paul George when they said, no, we're not going to trade for him now and give up anything of significant value because he's going to sign with us. He didn't sign with them. He chose to stay in Oklahoma City. So the Lakers, they can't just afford to waste a year with LeBron, he's going to be 35 in December. They need to take advantage of this, bring in Anthony Davis. And in terms of just exactly what this does for the Lakers in terms of their status as contenders, it depends on where they go from here. Now, with the the reports of the trade is probably going to be finalized on July 6th versus July 30th, and they they won't have the cap space to sign another max player. Uh, That could certainly play a role in terms of just how good they can be. But the West seems wide open. If they add the right role players uh, to who can, you know, combine with LeBron James and Anthony Davis, I think that this team could legitimately be the favorites in the Western Conference heading into next season. And then when you look at the Pelicans, I think a lot of it is quantity over quality at the like surface value. And then from there, it's just a matter of how some of those guys pan out because Lonzo Ball Brandon Ingram, they were both number two overall picks. They both have a little bit of their health concerns. Brian mentioned Brandon Ingram's blood clot. Seems to be okay based on uh, what I've read about that. And you would hope, hope that he is not going to have any kind of like long-term injury, kind of like uh, what we Chris saw Bosch. with Chris Bosh that ended his career. Uh, and then in terms of Lonzo Ball, he he's had his problems staying off the court or staying on the court, off the court. His dad's a bit of an issue, but it seems like he's going into a situation where he could potentially thrive with Drew Holiday as a, a veteran who can kind of move off the ball. He can help run the point there, but also really thrive in that uh, number two guard role. Josh Hart and the number four overall pick figure they'll probably both be kind of role players in this Pelicans t- team, at least this year, with the chance to develop. and. It is a three-player draft, so if a team really wants that number four pick, the Pelicans can maybe say, all right, we're going to try to do something with it, whether that's turning it into multiple picks by trading back or even turning it into a, a all-star or another potential all-star player uh, if the situation presents itself. So I really think that all around this is a great trade for both teams. It makes the Lakers a seemingly legitimate championship contender if the rest of the offseason plays out as it should for them and the pelicans it's not often you trade a superstar and you look at a team and say wow this team might actually make the playoffs this year and that they're looking good for the the long term uh you know a lot of it's going to depend on those draft picks taking a bit of a gamble that maybe the lakers aren't going to be as great as they could be which will probably require anthony davis not sticking around but 
overall, I think in terms of the situation New Orleans was in, they have to be happy with what they got, and the Lakers have to be happy that they got Anthony Davis over some of their other rivals who were in pursuit of him. I guess from here, what do you guys think the Lakers should do? Do you think, you know, if they have the max contract space, do you think that they should pursue one of those free agents? Or do you think they should try to add more role players to have a more well-balanced team versus a front-loaded team? I mean, there have been rumors about trying to get Jimmy Butler, but can they afford him now with Anthony Davis going to be on the roster? Yeah, so that depends on the date. If, if if everything is finalized on June, July 6th, as expected, they won't be able to. If the trade goes to July 30th, the player at that point can be signed and therefore uh, used as salary cap space. That's the, the number four overall pick. I mean, yeah, I, I try to get as much talent as possible with LeBron's window closing. Like you said, he's going to be turning 35 in December, and he's probably, yeah, he's almost done with his career, and Anthony Davis is... Of course, he's in his prime, but just those two alone. But also Kuzma. Can't forget about Kuzma. He wasn't even in that deal to the Pelicans. That's an underrated part of that trade. With those three, I I mean, they're, they're definitely a playoff team, but I think it's kind of silly that they're already the favorite, but they're definitely a playoff team, no doubt. Kemba, Kyrie, D'Angelo Russell. Depending on how other moves go in this offseason, if they could land one of those three guys, I think they'd have a legitimate uh, big three and instantly be title contenders. Would they really want D'Angelo Russell again after everything he did? This is a different Lakers organization now. He could. uh... That doesn't mean that they forgot about everything he did, though. (laughs) Everything that happened with the Nick Young situation. Or going to the airport. How do you go to the airport and not think you're going to get caught? <laughs> I guess I'm mainly focusing on the what he could uh, on court. What well, he does on the court rather than uh, off the court. Yeah, what I he know. could provide. Um, but <laughs> at the same time, um, Kemba or Kyrie. Honestly, I'm just interested in seeing this Lakers organization add as much talent as possible in the short term because that's obviously the route they're taking. Um, and the more support you can give, you can give LeBron. I mean, we've already seen what he's done in a big three situation. Um, and like you said, it feels like the West is wide open, especially because all the Warriors are injured. So, uh, you know, we'll see. I think if they're able to convince Anthony Davis to stick around long term, which probably will be fairly easy to do, uh, given that Rich Paul is his agent and he seemingly wants to stay in L.A. with the Lakers. This is a great short-term move, but also a long-term. If you have Anthony Davis, you're going to be an attractive destination outside of the fact that you're in Southern California. So I do think that uh, it it would be interesting for the Lakers to go out and add another max player, but I, I like the idea of them trying to surround LeBron with better guys than they did last year. Uh, but that this is the Lakers we're talking about. I don't think they're going to win a championship with Lance Stevenson, JaVale McGee, and Rayshon Rondo. No, no, and I, I do find it the, the possibility that the Lakers made this trade not realizing that uh, Anthony or not, yeah, that Anthony Davis would have this four million dollar trade um, thing that would raise his his contract, and uh, also they wouldn't have enough cap space to sign a max player. I, I do find that hilarious that the Lakers botched this, but I, I do think that they, they know what they're doing. Can't so. Anthony Davis defer on that, though? He can, which from a team player perspective, you think he would, but from a personal perspective, why would you turn down $4 million if it's there for the taking? 
<laughs> it's interesting. So, yeah, it's a lot of money. And like, I, th- I think 23 versus 27 still doesn't get him a max player. It could get him a D'Angelo Russell. It could open up a, a little more in terms of some of the role players they can add to that team. But it does seem like they're if they go out and add a third player, they're just going to have to throw in a bunch of the, your Lance Stevenson, JaVale McGee's who are willing to play there on a veteran minimum and you know, hope it works out. But as we saw with the Warriors, injuries happen. We saw it with the Lakers last year with LeBron. So I think they would be better off having a more well-rounded team um, than necessarily just having three guys and a bunch of scrubs plus Kyle Kuzma. So... Uh, with that, I think we are ready to finish our NBA talk and move on to our quick hitter segment where we will talk the Stanley Cup Finals and for the first time in their history, going back to 1967, the St. Louis Blues are Stanley Cup champions. And it was at the expense of Brian's Boston Bruins. So Brian, I'll give you a chance to kind of open this, this segment here with your thoughts on what happened in that seven-game series. Yeah, so this was obviously brutal for me, and I think that if you ask me who was the better team in that series or who played better, I think it was definitely the Blues. They were by far the more physical team. They were the better five-on-five team. Their forecheck was tremendous. They constantly won puck battles. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly was by far the best player in that Stanley Cup Finals series, and was deserving of the consmite. Uh, Alex Petrangelo was also huge on both ends of the ice and in Game 7 with that goal to end the first period in, in Game 7. Uh, I think Colton Pareko was also the X-factor in this series. He might have not stuffed the stat sheet as much as he as he did in previous series or in the regular season, but him and Jay Bomeister definitely shut down that Bergeron Marchand uh, Pasternak line. And also... After the Blues won that series and won, or won the Stanley Cup, him and uh, a Blues super fan Layla Anderson, the the girl who you know was diagnosed with this rare disease, it's showing them with their friendship and them holding the cup together was definitely uh, one heartwarming thing I can say about the Blues winning rather than the Bruins winning. Or yeah, uh, but I think the biggest difference maker in the series was Jordan Bington's play in Game Five and Game Seven. Yeah, he was really shaky in the beginning of the series, and I still don't think he's that good of a goalie, but it's 2-2 two to two in the series, and Jordan Bennington outplayed Tuka Rask, and we'll get to him later uh, in two of the last three games of the series. And yeah, J- Jordan Bennington had a very up-and-down series. Mm-hmm. When he was at his best, he was basically a brick wall. When he was at his worst, he didn't even last the entire game before being pulled. Mm-hmm. It, it was one thing you said that it felt like the Blues dominated this series. To me, I thought that the team that won the first six games, at least when it was 3-3, I thought the, Blues, the team that won was the more dominant. Yeah, like, I thought the, the, the Blues... The Bruins had three convincing victories. Mm-hmm. The Blues had a lot more chances that they, they just couldn't capitalize on. Uh, but their three wins, I think that they totally controlled them throughout. Game three and game six, the Bruins were, of course, the better team. But outside of that, no, I thought the even before game seven, I thought the Blues were were the better team throughout the series. And I think the Bruins, I think they blew it. And I, I think they were the better. T- I still think they're the better team on paper, but the they choked this series, and I think the Bergeron, Martian, Posternock line was probably, if you were doing a blame pie chart for the Bruins, I would say they're the ones on top. Like, Martian leaving the ice before the period ends and blowing that opportunity 
with Petrangelo scoring the goal with t- less than seven seconds left in the first period, that might that move might have cost him the Stanley Cup. That yes, and you know we'll get to Tuca later, mm-hmm. but as Brad Marchand is is one of the more hateable players in the league, not just on the Bruins. So like the fact that he was the guy who made that horrible mistake. Um, allowing that goal in the final 10 seconds that I I enjoy that like it's much better than just being some random role player who you feel bad for it's just uh, like this is probably a bad comparison but he's just like Draymond Green where oh, you yeah. hate him I mean I actually personally like Draymond Green but most NBA fans you hate him but if he was on your team you'd love him and that's just yeah. like Brad Marshall. Oh, yeah. There, there are a lot of guys like that, and Marshawn is the ultimate example. I, I do think it, it was impressive on his end that he didn't have to get yelled at for licking other players this time around <laughs> like he did last year. But, yeah, in terms of that, that goal, that was totally on him. And it, he had a great season, like first time with 100 points, right. and mm-hmm. he was the, the leading point scorer mm-hmm. for the Bruins in the postseason exactly. so it's not even like you could say he was terrible throughout it was just a, a mental mistake in game seven and it really cost his team a championship it's not that bad if you're down one nothing but once if you get down two nothing and the way it happened down you, you give up the second goal with less than 10 seconds left in the first period at home I, I don't I strongly believe that in hockey it's the one sport where um, a game seven, it's it's really bad when it's at home because if you give up that first goal or even first two goals, all the air is just wiped out of the building and there it's dead silent and you just know that it's not going to be good at the end of it. Uh, so are, are you? Do you think that you're also saying that because this is now the fifth time the Bruins? I also lost probably am biased because I've just witnessed it way too many times as a Bruins fan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of times where the Bruins have lost uh, big games at home. And I think it, it was easy to kind of think, oh, the Bruins home game seven in Boston, they're going to win because that's just the Boston lore that, that's been established over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. But you look at just like on paper, everything kind of seemed like it should have played in St. Louis's favor because they were so good on the road. They only lost three road games the entire postseason. And they were so good back to back. They only lost four games back to back going back to January 3rd when uh they they climbed out of the bottom of the standings. They won three of the four uh home or games in Boston, but the one mm-hmm. the one game that they did lose, they were up to nothing and you can honestly say they were the better team in that game even though they lost. Yeah, I think they they kind of choked in the And at the end of it, the, yeah, like, but Boston definitely took control yeah. by those final two periods. You can so. make a case for it, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. No, they they started out off to a pretty early start. Um, and I, I know another story of not just this series, but the playoffs in general that you have uh, harped on in the past is officiating. So game five is a big one. The missed trip that led to a Blues goal and an eventual two to one victory. Uh, I guess based on everything else you had seen, like what were your thoughts on on the officials as a, a Bruins fan in this series? The officiating was absolutely pathetic. I mean, not just that one moment, but even beforehand with the cross check to Pavelski and giving a five minute major. And then all of a sudden the Sharks score four goals and then win the series. And then the Sharks hand pass that Timo Meyer had in game three versus the blues. That was pretty pathetic, but what was really bad about this one. And of course, yeah, I'm biased as a Bruins fan, but what I hated was in game three, after the Bruins dominated the blues, Craig, Beru- Craig Berube, who I can't stand now, 
the Blues coach, he comes out on the podium and says, you know, we are the least penalized team uh, throughout this playoffs, and now all of a sudden we're getting all, we're getting four penalties and they score four goals, and then the refs buy into that, and in game five, Nolachari gets clearly tripped by Tyler Bozak, but they don't call a penalty, and then David Perron scores the goal, and I just knew once it was two nothing there, I'm like, well, the Bruins are definitely gonna score a goal, and then they're just gonna lose, and then I'm, I was furious after that moment, and uh, I want as much as I want to keep complaining about that the officiating in that moment the Bruins win game six and they have a win or or lose situation in game seven so I don't know how much I can complain about that when they have an opportunity in game seven to win it all yeah the I, I think it was interesting you know, in the sense that the the Blues were a victim of a a bad call on a goal and like you mentioned the the hand pass against San Jose they fell behind two to one and then they won the next three games. And that was something that the Bruins, it it looked like they had a chance to do when they were dominant in their game six victory in St. Louis. But like you said, game seven, they, they had chances and Jordan Bennington was great. And the Bruins didn't allow too many St. Louis scoring opportunities, but the blues converted on a lot of them. Even Uh, I think even I predicted it would go seven games. It feel, it felt like, None of the momentum carried from one game to the next. It was always different. No, oh, it was every all game. over the place. Yeah, because it, it was almost every other. Yeah, game. game four and game five with the Blues was the only consecutive one. But even that, like the Bruins were getting tons of shots off, but Jordan Bennington was playing out of his mind. And then, of course, the the horrible call on on uh, missed call in in that game. But what the crazy thing about that missed call though was. Tyler Bozak trips Nolichari, right? And he goes, he starts, wait, you know, moving his hands up. Like, what did I do? That's the the easy, like, oh, you totally did something there kind of move. But the refs still did nothing, and they still kept playing. And it was, you know, just a horrible ending to that game. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always tough when officiating plays a role. But it, it felt like that was a big theme of this postseason i mean regardless the bruins i mean yeah they i mean forget the refs like they they blew it this series i mean it's not just martian i mean pasternak was awful um offensively i mean he turned the puck over so many times and he got pushed around by the bigger blues team and krejci another key part of their team zero goals two assists in in the entire series and bergeron as much as i love him and he, he was clearly playing hurt Still, though, zero points, five on five is is not something you can do for your best for your best player and win a series. It's I just think Cassidy relied way too much on their first line. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in terms of the Bruins blowing it, I think what they really did was they blew the the best performance they've gotten out of Tuka Rask mm-hmm. in a postseason. And we talked last time about some of the uh, the moments he's had um 2010 up 3-0 lost four in a row and in 2013 giving up six goals in game four and then two goals in a 17 second stretch to to lose game six in the series he he's won a Vezina but this is the first time since then that he'd made it even to the Eastern Conference mm-hmm. Finals let alone to the Stanley Cup Finals Game seven wasn't that great for him but overall I don't know if you can totally put the blame on him no. which I mean yeah, he deserves some blame, but the thing is, 
like so in Boston, there's an anti Tuca fan club, and then the one that's and I'm part of that. Yeah, and I am as well. And then there's the group that supports him no matter what. And you know, I've been wanting the Bruins to trade Tuca for a long time, but in this postseason, he was the best player in the entire postseason. And yeah, Ryan O'Reilly was the best player in the Stanley Cup, but throughout the entire postseason, it was definitely Tuca. And they're not—he's the biggest reason why they even made it as far as they did. And yeah, in Game Seven, he you know gives up two goals in the first period on four shots. And honestly, as much as I loved Tuca's performance in the postseason, was I deep down in my core was I really that surprised that he blew it in the first period and then you know then the game like not really no it's just no that's that's just his that's the narrative on Tuca's career is that as good as he is um like you know he he blows it in the at the most crucial times and I kind of feel bad for him because he was awesome this time but uh I don't want him to trade him but at the same time it's still in the back yeah, of my mind that he's gonna blow it to in ask, big moments. but do you think they should like based on the, how long this has has gone on that he hasn't been able to uh, put together the the complete postseason even though this this was as close as it seems like he'll get like is it is it that's fair what, to say that that's what's really change? crushing about this series loss personally it's just that so when they lost everyone outside of Boston was like oh boohoo Boston you know they lost the championship like that never happens but see with the Patriots it's like even when I complain after they lost to the Eagles, you know, deep down, like, okay, they're pro- even though I wasn't high on them, they're probably going to come back and be in the AFC Championship or Super Bowl, and they actually ended up winning. But with the Bruins, the, the road for them could not have been better because Washington, Pittsburgh, Tampa, like we've said in the past, they all lose in the first round, and they're the favorites after the first round, and the path couldn't have worked out for them better. And now, and but then they blew it, and... I think the Stealing Cup is the hardest trophy to win because in the NBA, if you have all the talent, like you're going to be back in it. Uh, and then in you know football, it's usually the same team. Well, sometimes it's different in the MC, but Patriots are always in it. But in hockey, it's always different. It, I mean, the St. Louis Blues were last place in January, last in the entire league, and then they win the Stanley Cup. I mean, even a guy who put a $400 bet on the Blues to win it all during that time won $100,000 for that bet. Uh, by betting his favorite team to win the Stanley Cup, which is so crazy. Yeah, it was it was certainly a remarkable turnaround for the Blues, and I, I do feel bad for Boston fans who who put the Bruins as you know their first second team, like they are legitimate fans because the Patriots are the reason why people hate Boston. You know the Red Sox yeah. as well, but the Celtics per- have won one title, the Bruins have won yeah, one. Per- per- it's not like those teams have done a ton, but they've kind of absorbed that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of these like diehard Bruins fans that everyone's rooting against them because all the Patriots fans who are like, "Oh, Bruins another Boston championship," even though they can't name five players right. and don't watch them during the mm-hmm. regular season. That's it, it, that's, th- this one personally hurts. Like outside of Super Bowl 42, I personally this is this was like one of the worst losses I've experienced. I mean, I like all four. I love all four Boston teams, but if I were to do the order, like I think Bruins are in my top two with the Patriots. If I had to pick between the four, and again, like I don't know if that core of again Bergeron, Marchand, Krejci, Chara uh, can get can get back to the Stanley Cup again, which is re- which really sucks, especially for Chara. I mean, let's talk about that. Where he he breaks yeah. his jaw in Game Four, and 
I'm thinking that he's done or maybe he comes back, but all of a sudden he comes back immediately, game five, and then he gets a, a nice ovation, which I really enjoyed as well. And I, I mean, that's it shows you like what hockey players will go through just to win the Stanley Cup. Yeah, yeah, hockey tough. That's that's always the phrase you hear. And for Char to do it at, what, 47, 52 <laughs> years old, like, <laughs> that makes it even crazier. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Uh, with that, uh, let, let's move on to our next segment. So welcome back, Ben. Do you want to introduce it for us? Sure. It's time for El Loja Echo. Uh, The United States women's national team kicked off their quest to win back-to-back World Cups with a historic 13-0 route over Thailand and followed it up with another convincing 3-0 victory over Chile. So, uh, U.S. women's national team, defending champs of the, the World Cup in 2015, number one in the world, and their first World Cup game, they go out and beat Thailand 13 to nothing. Just once again, asserting our dominance over the rest of the world in the sport of women's soccer. It was a bit of a controversial victory. Uh, and Ben, I, I guess, what are your thoughts on the U.S. women scoring as many goals as they did and celebrating as much as they did? Um, okay, let's see. Is there incentive to score as much as possible? Well, goal differential comes into uh, the way the next round works. So, yes, you want to score as much as possible. The game uh, incentivizes it. So I can't blame them for that. Um, Now, did they celebrate too much? Well, uh, I'm not sure. Is there anything Thailand could have done to prevent them from uh, celebrating too much? Uh, could they have yeah. stopped them from scoring? Yeah, yes, not give up 13 goals. Yes. So if you don't want them to celebrate, don't let them score. Okay. Uh, so I think everything they did is totally fine. I, I love how people think this is about United States versus Thailand. It's totally not. It's about the women's team proving that they're the best in the world. It's them showing everyone with their f- abilities on the soccer field that they're the best and the implications that come from that. I know right now there's like a discrepancy between the men and women's team's salaries and, you know, economics comes into play here like how much money do they bring in versus how much they should get paid all that is beside the point right now what they're doing is everything they can to show that they are the absolute best and if that means scoring 13 goals against another team that qualified for the top competition in international women's uh soccer then yeah then that's what it means it means that they're going to destroy those players so I have no problem with the way that they went about uh, the first game. In fact, I was watching it, and I was cheering with every single goal. I love it, too. No mercy. I, I if, if I was a dad like James Harrison, where my kids win these participation trophies, like, I just want them to throw it away, and I want... I, I Let me just get this out of the way. I'm not a real soccer fan like Ben, and I personally... When it comes to the men's team... Like they just blow it every time, but the women's team is awesome, and I'm, I I loved when in the final uh, four years ago versus Japan, when they went up four nothing. That was the best twenty minutes of soccer I've ever watched in my life. I I actually personally love the watching this team, particular team, uh, making their run uh, of dominance, whether if it's against Thailand or other countries. So I I agree with Ben. 
Yeah, when I first uh, I I forgot the game was going on. I was at work when it happened, and when I first got the update, like right after it ended, and saw that the U.S. won thirteen to nothing, my my first thought was, "Wow, that is so cruel." But then I I kind of like thought more about it, and like you said, the goal differential is is a bit of a factor. But to me, the big thing in terms of the them scoring thirteen goals like this, a lot of these women who scored. This is their first World Cup game. These are their first goals. And it, it makes sense that if you score in a World Cup, you're going to celebrate whether it puts your team up one nothing or 11 nothing. So I, I think from that, that perspective, it, it's justifiable. And like you said, this is the U.S. not just asserting their dominance over Thailand, but over the rest of the world. And the, we know that this women's team is the favorite, or at least they should be considered the favorite. It's in France. So I know that the French national team is also kind of up there, but really this, this team, just based on the performance, we go into it expecting them to win. And I, I thought it was actually interesting. I was listening to Ben's other podcast, Affable Chat, where he was talking about the women's team. Uh, and he said that the women had a 95% chance to win and there was a 4% chance to tie and a 1% chance that Thailand won. And I was just thinking, in what world does Thailand even win once in every 100 times? Just knowing <laughs> that this was a scenario and this if, is what if, happened. If, her, the, the if Herb Brooks of the U.S. Olympic hockey team gives that speech where uh, they might play us 99 times out of 100, they might win 99 times out of 100, but they won't win this one. Yeah. It would take a miracle yeah. speech for them to... Like, even if all the starters get injured, like, is there any way that our B team or even our C team isn't still better than the, these girls? Like, I, I don't know. I, I just thought that was kind of interesting, and maybe maybe I'm not not thinking clearly and saying how how many times you have to, to win to go 100-0, but it, it really didn't feel like Thailand had any sort of a chance before the game started, let alone at any point after all the goals started coming in. What a savage roast of the Thailand women's national team <laughs> to be like, 1% chance of victory? That's way too much. <laughs> um, so if we, if we look at their second game, you know, Chile, it was only 3 nothing. But both games are three nothing at the half, and uh, didn't score ten goals in the second half against Chile. So is that a sign that the U.S. aren't quite as dominant as we think they are? No. If you watch the game, the Thailand goalkeeper absolutely went insane in the second half. Uh, she was amazing, and and that's the thing. The Chile. Yeah, sorry. The Chile goalie went, went totally, uh, you know, sicko mode in the second half. Well, the Thailand she, goalie was probably ins- going insane too, giving up thirteen goals. <laughs> yeah, there were definitely Thailand <laughs> players that cried after that game, which made me feel bad. But um, no, the Chile goalie, she she's really tall. Um, she's surprisingly tall, and she played amazingly in that second half. And that's something that we don't want to forget. Is as much as we love to. Uh, you know, have our homerism and back the United States women's team. There are actually some amazingly gifted women's soccer players uh, from the entire world. And uh, we get to witness them as well in this tournament. And uh, I mean, I don't know if she's known to be an amazing goalkeeper, but the Chilean goalkeeper played really well in the second half. And it could have easily been nine to zero. Like if the goalie didn't play that well uh, and, and she didn't, she wasn't able to make some of her amazing stops the United States women were getting plenty of shots off, and that's why I don't feel I feel just as confident as I did right after they finished thirteen niling uh, Thailand. Are, are are people more furious about the fact that they scored thirteen goals, or is it because of 
all the celebrations that they had. Both. I think the celebrations were pretty significant in that. It's both, but um, yeah, actually, yeah, we kind of didn't discuss that at, at length. But the celebrations as well, I I could um, give or take, or I could take or leave the the celebrations. But at the same time, they're scoring goals. The the you know that's what you do in a World Cup. This is the most important competition in women's soccer. Uh, if you can't celebrate now, when can you celebrate? So. Yeah, and like I said, a lot of these these women were scoring for the first time in the World Cup. They don't know if they're going to get an opportunity to do it again. So Five of the 13 goals were... F- Alex Morgan. Well, yes, Alex Morgan scored five of oh. them, but also five of the goals were scored by women who were making their debut in the World Cup. Um, so four players had their first goal in the World Cup in their first game, and one of them scored twice. So I would celebrate that, my first goal in the World Cup. You're gonna, I'm not going to play No, I goal. agree. Yeah. Yeah, that was one thing that, you know, when, when I, like, first heard that, I was instantly like, oh, yeah, you're right. That makes so much sense why why they would be celebrating. Because <laughs> you don't know when it's going to happen again, if it's going to happen again. So bask in the moment. I'm sure um, I'm sure it's the celebrations that took people off. I mean, like, Jose Batista, when he hit that big home run in the playoffs, he throws his bat and celebrates, and all of a sudden the Rangers players get pissed off. And then Cam Newton's MVP, or the amount of times he dabbed and danced in the end zone, and the mad players that got furious whenever he celebrated. I mean, I'm sure it's more of a celebration thing than scoring. I mean, who? What if it's eight, nine, ten, thirteen here, goals? I mean, here, here's the it's thing: a lot. when you get mad at players to celebrate, and we, we've even discussed on this episode, don't do you, don't don't yeah, let them don't score. Let them score. Yeah. Don't let them score. You can yeah. stop them from celebrating anytime mm-hmm. you want, as long as you don't let them score. Yeah. So I have no problem with it. Yeah. I know it's easy to say that as a United States women's national team fan, but, uh, you know, don't let them score. Yeah, and, you know, there, there's a lot of takes that, oh, we people wouldn't be complaining uh, if it was a men's team. And you're right, we wouldn't because the men aren't good enough to score 13 goals against anybody in a game. Got them. So, Got them. <laughs> or in a terror tournament. Um, no. Yeah, or yeah. a whole tournament. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or even make the tournament. Yeah, they, actually, so. they pumped their, fist, their chests out thinking that, like, oh, we accomplished so much. We got a group of death. You beat Ghana and you tied Portugal. Like, I, oh, I believe that we will win. Oh, I believe that. We-. And then all of a sudden they lose to Belgium in the first round. Like, that's great. Yeah. And then they even make the tournament the next the the next yeah. World Cup. Yeah, yeah, it's a joke for the men's the men's side. That'll be the next time we make the World Cup. We'll do the women's team challenge hashtag women's team challenge. We'll try to score thirteen goals before we get eliminated. That's- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so I guess moving on to the to the U.S next game it's against sweden and that could be kind of significant because sweden was a team that eliminated us in the olympics back in 2016 um so that feels like a game where i i don't know if i necessarily say that we're not the the favorite to win but it, it seems like this could be one where sweden can actually put up a bit of a fight compared to what we'd been seeing in the first two uh it depends for me, in my opinion, because it depends what the mindsets are of the teams going out there. Uh, the women's international field of teams is, is I don't know if it's as concrete and like who's better uh, when it's determined by these groups. So I don't know if it matters that much to come out number one or number two in the group stage. I think it just matters that you advance. So I heard that we might be playing France in the quarterfinals. I, is that, the, that that would be like after the the round of 16 though so like you can't think too far ahead with that well, but well, sure but 
if we really believe we have the best team there is, um, I don't think it really matters what happens in this third game because Sweden and the United States are definitely going to advance and the United States is going to be able to beat whoever they go up against. So if we, I mean, as I have a lot of faith in our depth, uh, so I feel like even if we played all backups, we'd still win this game. But as many backups as we could. and I, The squad's not that large for the World Cup, but... Um, I don't think this matchup really matters all that much. It would matter more if we had gone up against them in the first or second game, but because of the way that the group stage has gone on, it doesn't actually really matter that much for us uh, who comes out on top in game three. I mean, is the record the same where the U.S. is 2-0? and and is? Yeah, they both have six points. Okay. Goal differential is a little, little skewed in the U.S.'s <laughs> favor. <laughs> but, you know, it protects us if we lose... 10 nothing, right? Right. So I'm very confident we can beat Sweden, but on the off chance yeah. that I don't I really don't under I don't know how this would happen, but if we somehow put together a combination on the field that was all backups and we lost, I don't really think that's very indicative because th- th- this game because of how well we've played so far doesn't mean as much as the other games. Okay. Yeah, and then I guess from there I I I think that I'm speaking for the crowd and we're all expecting this women's team to win the world cup for the second time in a row yep you bet all right uh well we will keep an update on how the world cup goes here but i think for now it's time to oh and we have an athlete in the news coming in and uh this is actually a a bit of a a tragic unfortunate story because on June 9th, Boston Red Sox legend David Ortiz was shot at an entertainment center in his native Dominican Republic in what was later determined to be a bounty attack. And I don't know about you guys, but I was shocked when I found out this news and even more shocked when I found out that this was an assassination attempt on a, a, an athlete who... You know, as a Red Sox fan, I've grown to love, but just on on someone who's been such a a big name in the baseball world for the last couple decades. Yeah, it's such a terrifying story, and it could have been so much worse. You know, obviously, if if the gunman um, you know hit hit him in other places, like it could have been so much worse. And uh, it's like what Pedro said that how could someone so. He, we're not we don't know all this all the stories yet i mean maybe he probably did something shady whether if it's um uh, you know sleeping with uh, the drug lord's uh wife or whatever we've heard some crazy stories and it's definitely not gonna uh end anytime soon but i mean he's been dave ortiz is one of the most beloved athletes in boston and it's he's up there with tom brady as probably at the number one I think spot he's, number he's one. probably number one given the fact brady. that brady you know he's 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 above everyone when it comes to when it comes to people, but David Ortiz is beloved by everyone. Yeah, and not and not just Boston, but in the Dominican Republic, he's one of the most recognizable people in the Dominican Republic. Okay, hold on, I, I'm not trying to undermine your argument here, but wait, he's more legendary than Tom Brady. Yeah. So for okay, so the thing with David Ortiz versus Tom Brady, I think a lot of it comes down to the off the field stuff. And the way that yeah, it's just that David Ortiz is what he's kind of done for the community. His involvement in that Tom Brady has been legendary because of his performance on the field, but David Ortiz he comes close to matching him 
because the Red Sox went 86 years before winning a championship, and he guided them to three. And I think really the big thing that that puts him over the it's top just, was that it's just, it's uh, just that it's this is our effing city. Yeah, and Wait, the thing with on. Brady is that our effing city. What is that? So in 2013, after the Boston Marathon bombing, he goes out on a Sunday afternoon versus the Royals. Makes a speech before the game at Fenway Park, and it was the first game after the yeah, bombing. Yeah, and he thanks the Boston Police Department and all their efforts and everyone else that contributed. And then all of a sudden, he said, "This is our effing city," and all the fans, uh, you know, cheer after he makes that speech. And it's a, it's a, it's something that is remembered by everyone. Yeah, it was just a way of, of uniting the city after such a, a horrible incident. Wow. No, that's that's definitely powerful. And he ends up winning yeah. the World Series MVP that same exact year. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, just like, beyond that, just like some of the stuff that he, he's done, uh, just like with, with kids and uh, Mass General and uh, just like helping out the community, that's not something that you see as much with Tom Brady. So... Uh, I think that's why David Ortiz is just a little more beloved, just because he's more, he's more relatable with Boston. the people too. It's just Br- yeah. Brady, yeah, on on the field, he's, the, he's the more pretty legendary. Boy on the crazy diet, he's, like, he's got this crazy nutrition thing, dude. He's but crazy. he's also won six MF titles, fam. Like, yeah, yeah, on the field, like, no one's more Brady, legendary. No one can relate. No one, to one that. comes close. Like, on the, only the field, comes close is Jordan. On the field, he's more legendary, but off the field. He's kind of a nut. <laughs> He's kind of yes. awkward. Ortiz is the most legendary Red Sox player ever. And just because of the the success he was actually be able to bring to a city that was starved for a World Series title. Just the the curse of the Bambino being able to break that curse and turn Boston Red Sox into a championship contender year after year. No, and that, and that's great. And I mean obviously to have him even utter, like mention the same breath as Tom Brady is massive praise and to even surpass him, you know, is even greater. And I'm sure that's accurate for people of Boston because it's like being part of the community. Um, but this enlightened me, this story enlightened me to how dangerous the Dominican Republic is. Apparently it's one of the most dangerous countries in the world. It's uh, yeah, their murder rate is 12.5 killings per 100,000 people. Like uh, statistically, this is bound to happen. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of- there have been a lot of tourists and like people who go there that have have been victims and, and killed in recent years. And it's scary because my, my family likes to vacation in Dominican Republic. So I uh, thought of them going back that that's something that's got to be a bit alarming. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that we know who who have been there and uh, will continue to go there potentially, uh, depending on how bad this this gets. Maybe not. But it does seem like a scary place for people to go, and it, it's a shame because it, it, it seems like a beautiful island and a, a really great place for Americans or others to want to go. But if David Ortiz isn't safe there, then I don't think anybody is. I mean, like with David Ortiz and Pedro Martinez, both guys who are from the Dominican Republic, both of those guys and other athletes, they take a lot of pride in their country, and that's why... They go back a lot, even though it's as dangerous as it is. But like you said, Corey, if David Ortiz, who's loved by everyone, not just in Boston, but in in the Dominican Republic, if even he's in danger, then it's probably dangerous for 
for everyone else that enters that country. Yes. Yeah. So just an all around crazy story. It sounds like Ortiz is going to be okay. Uh, he's had surgeries both in the Dominican Republic and in Boston. The Red Sox doing what they could to get him um, back into the States. And you think he'll be okay? Like you said, Brian, there's probably more stuff that comes out of this, but uh, it's just, just a scary thing and uh, not, not something you expect to see. I can only imagine what it's going to be like when he leaves the hospital and comes home because his wife is going to have a couple more questions that she's oh, wondering, yeah. like, Probably the first one is, uh, why are there nine guys after you trying to kill you and assassinate you? Like, he's she's gonna ask all these questions to Ortiz. Yeah, and I'm, like, I'm sure that's not. It's not exactly the, the a conversation thought. that is gonna go well for him. Yeah, one. It, yeah. His wife is gonna be like, "Hey, why are there nine guys trying to kill you?" And yeah. he's like, "Wife." I was in the Dominican Republic. That's like the average amount of people that are trying to kill you while you're in Dominican Republic. It's like not surprising. <laughs> I do know that uh, Red Sox fans will welcome him uh, back to Fenway Park whenever he's he's able to go back there following this, and uh, he'll he'll figure out his personal problems hopefully. But this is a, the important thing, of course, is that he is okay and that. Uh, he doesn't have any complications from this shooting. He's gonna live at Fenway Park. He may have to if his wife kicks him yeah, out in the Green <laughs> Monster. <laughs> so, all right. With that, let's move on to our final segment. That is the top five. And Father's Day uh, just just happened, so we are gonna be a little late when this is released. But that doesn't stop us from having a Father's Day themed top five. So for those of you who have been listening since the Ben and Corey podcast days, you may remember that Ben and I, a year ago, counted down our top five favorite dads from TV shows. And I thought it was a really fun list. We decided to put a little twist on that, but break out something similar. Uh, And we will count down our favorite movie dads in today's top five. Not two, not three, not four. Top five, top five, top five. So, Brian, why don't you lead us off? Okay, uh, so before I get to my top five list, though, uh, I'd like to give one shout-out to uh, PGA Tour Pro Gary Woodland, uh, who won the U.S. Open yesterday. Uh, two years ago, he, him and his wife were expecting twins, one, one boy and one girl, and during his wife's pregnancy, they lost the daughter, uh, and his game was obviously has obviously been affected the past couple of years. His mind hasn't been right at all in the, that much on the golf course through past couple of years. But yesterday on Father's Day, he goes out and wins his first major at Pebble Beach. And in, in August, him and his wife are actually expecting twins again, uh, two daughters and Hopefully that situation will go more smoothly than the first time. So shout out to Gary Woodland for winning the U.S. Open on Father's Day. And I don't know if he's ever been in a movie because if he has, I would put him in my top five. But I don't know if he has. So I can't put him in the t- my top five. Not yet. Yeah. But so on to my top five. At number five, I went with Marlon, who is the father of Nemo in the movie Finding Nemo. And in the movie, he, him and his wife uh lose and well he ends up losing his wife but also the children that baby fish that he was he was gonna have but they all end up getting killed uh 
All But One, which ended up being Nemo. And uh, what I love about Marlin is how protective of he is of Nemo, for good reasons, of course. And But not only that, he ended up losing Nemo and went on the journey of finding Nemo. And at like what Dory always said, P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney. So I... Uh, I'm a fan of that movie and a fan of how protective Marlon was of Nemo. So I went with Marlon at number five. My number four, I went with Daniel Hillard, who is Robin Williams' character in Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, who is, of course, a fun parent. He even threw his threw a party for his kid on his birthday, uh, even when he was getting bad grades. And there were even zoo animals at the house. And the wife, of course, was not happy, and they ended up getting divorced, but... Even though they were in a bad, even though they were in a bad situation, Daniel Hillard would do anything to see his kids still. To the point where he ended up dressing up as an old nanny, as Mrs. Doubtfire, and it, he's the best in that movie. And it's probably my favorite uh, Robin Williams movie of all time. And so I went with that. Daniel Hillard is my number four, and my number three. I went with Brian Mills in the movie Taken. I have used probably. Liam Neeson's character in, in my top five <laughs> at least three times, at least, which is okay because I think Ben has used uh, Game of Thrones characters like eight times in the top five, so I think I can yeah, get a pass for Avengers that. Avengers characters. Yeah, yeah, Game of Thrones and Avengers characters, right. It's just that with Brian Mills or Liam Neeson's character in that movie, I think if I can have any bodyguard, but if it's if I could choose between him, Clint Eastwood, Chuck Norris, I'm still taking Liam Neeson's character in that movie. Uh, for his for his daughter to get kidnapped and then only have probably 72 hours left to to find her or else she's gone forever uh, is a crazy situation and uh, Taken is one of my favorite movies one of my favorite action movies and so many great quotes and I know that has nothing to do with the fact how great of a daddy is but to kill all those people in that movie just to rescue his daughter uh, is definitely admirable so I went with Liam Neeson's character, Brian Mills, as my number three. My number two, I went with Sonny Koufax, who is Adam Sandler's character in Big Daddy. And I love uh, how careless he is with with this, with this the kid at first, who's not his, ends up not being his actual son. Uh, I love that he taught him how to pee on a building, tripping rollerbladers, uh, putting newspapers on top of places that uh, the kid puked on or peed on. Uh, but at at the end, he progresses as a father, ends up helping him with the school play as Benjamin Franklin helps him to helps him with bathing and reading. And uh, I love the progression that he made as a father in the movie. So I went with him as my number two and my number one. I went with Chris Gardner in the movie The Pursuit of Happiness, which personally for me, uh, after Toy Story 3, one of the biggest tear jerking endings Uh in the movie, he is evicted from his apartment with, along with his son, and they're living in bathrooms and homeless shelters. And in the movie, he lands. This is a true story, of course. And in in the movie, he, he lands an internship, but it's it's an unpaid internship. But he still puts all the effort he can into getting the job. And one of my favorite quotes in the movie was when he's interviewing for this internship, the day before he goes to jail for unpaid parking tickets. And so the next day he's running to his interview and not even in a suit. And he was painting his house uh, or apartment 
before he was arrested. So he was covered in paint all over his face and clothes. And so the 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 person that was hiring him was what would what would you say if I hired someone with the shirt that you're wearing right now? And he said the guy must have had on some really nice pants, <laughs> which is such a great <laughs> such a great line. Uh, so it's one that was one of my favorite lines in that movie. And uh, he just never gave up on his situation and it's def- again another admirable uh admirable movie and so i went with chris gardner will smith's character in that movie as my number one as best dad all right i'll pick it up right there with my top five uh and coming in at number five is mufasa from the lion king and mufasa does such a fantastic job as a father figure for simba to give him a good foundation to build upon. Simba obviously becomes uh, the Lion King himself, and uh, I don't think he uh, wouldn't have been able to do it if he didn't have that solid foundation that was built by Mufasa. Unfortunately, Mufasa's time as a father was cut, was cut short, uh, but he certainly did a great job instilling values in his son, and he even returns to do some uh, after-the-grave fathering in the form of some cloud visions that... Uh, uh, Simba has in, later in the movie. So uh, Mufasa definitely comes in my number five. Definitely would have been higher if he didn't get totally stampeded on uh, while he <laughs> and cutting his time as a father short. Uh, n- coming in at number four is Daniel Hillard. We heard a little bit about him from Brian, uh, who gave you guys a great endorsement on that movie that I would like to second. Mrs. Doubtfire, Mrs. Doubtfire is an absolute Robin Williams classic, and if you haven't seen it, you really should treat yourself and give it a viewing. But I'll also take the opportunity to endorse Robin Williams as the original genie of the lamp from Aladdin, uh, which, a quick plug for Affable Chat, we just did an uh, episode where we compared the original Aladdin to the new Aladdin, Robin Williams genie versus Will Smith genie, so definitely big fan of Robin Williams. Just a reminder, the 1992 version is very enjoyable. Moving on to my number three spot, Mark Day uh, is uh, the name of the father from the movie Eighth Grade, and uh, Kayla Day's father, the main character, Kayla. um, And he does such a fantastic job of uh, portraying an actual father. Uh, Josh Hamilton is the name of the actor, and he has a... He does a fantastic job in this role where he portrays fatherhood as less of a like less of something that you can really be that great at and more of something that it's just a valiant journey to embark upon. Uh, Josh Hamilton portrays uh, or rather Mark Day uh, is a father who you know went through a divorce and he's he's parenting his daughter by himself but he uh, it, sh- it shows that really the most valuable thing he brings to the table as a father is just being there for his daughter um, and how good that is for their relationship. So uh, eighth grade, another great movie. And Mark Day, a-, a dad for the ages. He really he really does a great job just being there for his daughter. Uh, daughter. Number two, Tony Stark. Like I said earlier, always got to include the Avengers on these lists. And uh, Tony Stark, not only is he a great father in the sense that he ends up having a daughter eventually in the last Avengers movie, but this is more about being a surrogate father to Peter Parker because the relationship between Iron Man and Spider-Man is amazing. One of the best aspects of like the first, or I guess phase three of the MCU. And uh, Tony Stark becomes the ultimate father when he decides to go back in time and make sure that Spider-Man can come back. 
Uh, even if it means sacrificing himself, he's going to bring back his surrogate son, Spidey, uh, from the grave, from the Thanos uh, snap. And uh, I think that makes him a pretty incredible father figure uh, for Spider-Man. Or rather, that's the, the ending of a father figure relationship uh, in which he gave Tony, uh, or sorry, he gave uh, Peter a lot to grow on. So I think that Tony Stark definitely comes in at number two on my top five dads list. And at number one, we have <laughs> the I, most iconic dad I could think of, the, the first name that came to my head when I heard we were making a movie dads list, and that's Darth Vader. Never before have I witnessed such a climactic dad reveal as Luke, <laughs> I'm your father. Uh, so d my helmet is off to you, Darth Vader. Um, most iconic dad in the galaxy, and uh, you're number one on my top five movie dads list. I think those are some solid choices at the top. Eighth grade was a bit of an awkward movie, but I, I do think that the dad is, is pretty solid in that, like your classic like awkward single dad for with the eighth grade daughter. Also, I have never seen Mrs. Doubtfire. What? Believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm, I'm like, feel like I need to. Oh, essential Robin must Williams. watch. Yeah, and I, I love Robin Williams. I, I don't know. I it, just it's, never it is the best the Robin Williams it. movie, personally, my opinion. Okay. All right. Noted. Um, so I'll, I'll wrap things up on my list. At number five, I went with Brian Mills from Taken. I was actually surprised that uh, Brian Wells didn't put Brian Mills as his number one. Um, but, yeah, you know, you talked a lot about him. This, this guy went to great lengths when – he found out that his daughter had his her life in danger, and it was just a, a cool dad, you know, being able to uh, go out and use his her, which is use his that... particular set of skills. Yes, yeah. So, gotta gotta include him on my list at number five. Number four, I actually did a little switcheroo with this one about five minutes ago, but I, I realized I needed to include this individual, and that is Guido Orifice from Life is Beautiful. And this is a 1997 film. I don't know if this is a remake, but there are a lot of movies out there called Life is Beautiful. Seems like a pretty um, good name for a movie. And uh, this one, despite the name, actually is not about a beautiful thing, as Guido Orifice is a Jewish man in the early 1940s living in Italy who is taken to a concentration camp along with his wife and his son. Uh, so Guido, uh, knowing the horrors of what is taking place and what his son, uh, his young son, who is only uh, a few years old, is about to be subject to, decides to try to you know save him uh, just in this this awful time by telling him that it's just a game and that he he'll his son will earn points by hiding from the guards and not complaining about being tired or hungry or anything and just uh, you know listening and and being just a I guess a smart little kid uh, given the situation that he's in while hoping to you know have him have no idea what's going on and ultimately in the end uh, Guido is when he's trying to find his wife uh, gets captured by an officer and they decide to execute him and even in his his final moments before being taken to an alleyway is, is making funny noises winking at his his son making him 
think that everything's going to be okay. And uh, the they want to basically Guido says whoever is the most points wins a tank. It ends with the son getting to ride in the tank with the U.S. soldier as uh, they're being freed from the camp. And he's uh, just saying to his mom like, "Oh, we want to. I get to win a tank for for winning this uh, horrible event." He was in you know forced into. Uh, being a little kid in that situation, you, you can't imagine the horrors and the fact that his dad was able to make make it something that his son didn't realize uh, certainly would mean a lot uh, for the rest of his life. I don't know if it was actually based on a true story, but I can only imagine just how horrifying that would be for most kids. So uh, just the way that Guido responded to that situation, I have to include him in my top five dads. Number three, Marlon Finding Numo. It's another one that uh, Brian already talked about. It's, Finding Nemo is a, a fantastic Pixar movie, and that's that's one where even Finding Nemo two, Marlin plays a great great father to to Nemo and his quest to save him. So I gotta have uh, Marlin in my top five here. Number two is Noah Levenstein from the American Pie series. He's just your typical nerdy, awkward dad. Uh, with an equally awkward son, and he's not afraid to give him, you know, a, we are a family podcast, so I'll try to spare some of the details, but a lot of, lot of sexual advice and uh, pulling him out of interesting situations that uh, would be awkward for most sons to be in with their dads, but he's just an all-around kind of funny guy, funny character. I don't know if I would necessarily want him to be my dad, but in terms of the uh, being able to kind of laugh and at him and while also realizing that there are some some weird situations that he is totally comfortable with being in with his son one of, one of the the lesser inappropriate ones is him showing up to his his son's dorm getting ready to move him out and says oh i bring a six pack of beer convinces his ra to go up to the room and you know walks in at a rather unfortunate time for his son jimmy but just like the those kind of cool moments of of noah trying to at least be that cool father while still being that that nerdy awkward guy he is uh so he is my number two and then my number one atticus finch from to kill a mockingbird I love the book a lot more than the movie, but that doesn't take away from Atticus and what he does in terms of just being this honorable guy uh, who's a great father for Gem and Scout while taking on this difficult role of being a lawyer for an African-American man who is likely wrongfully accused of a crime in 1930s rural Alabama. So uh, just the, the character that Atticus is, what he does defending uh, this man, as well as just being someone that his kids can look up to and love, uh, being a widower, uh, it was an easy decision in the end for me to make him my number one. So that concludes another episode of He's Done It. Be sure to uh, like, subscribe, rate, give us a follow on our Twitter at He's Done It Pod, and continue to spread the word. So, for my co-hosts, Benjamin Carlson and Brian Wells, I'm Corey Navani. Thanks, everyone. Go in and steam.